Welcome back to The Reading Cafe, the podcast from Holy Cross High School that aims to get people talking about reading. I'm Neve, and I'm one of the new S6 reading leaders and I'm really excited to be involved in something like this because I'm so interested in reading and books and it's been really great to get involved in the Reading Cafe podcast. And I'm Daniel, I'm also an S6 reading leader and I'm just happy to be here and I'm happy that I got the opportunity to do this. I think both of us are really excited for today's episode. And if you're a fan of this time of year, Halloween, and scaring yourself, then have no fear because we have just the show for you coming right up. We have a frighteningly good conversation with the master of horror, Darren Shan, the writer of Zombie and Cirque the Freak. He explains how he made his dreams come true using his nightmarish imagination. You can also expect to hear his answers to some questions from S1 Test 4 superfans that came in. They also really enjoyed this experience just as much as us. And we'll be reading some spine-chilling S1 spooky stories that were submitted for Halloween. It's probably best you keep the lights on while you listen to this one, you've been warned. Hello. Hello. Hi, Darren. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to have a chat with you. No problem. Um, I'm Neve and this is Daniel. Um, And we're really excited to have a chat with you. So are the younger students as well. Excellent. That's good. Um, we're both S6 reading leaders, that's why we're doing this, and we're just so happy to get the opportunity. As soon as like, the younger schools, they're massive fans, so they'll be happy to talk to you as well later. Brilliant. How are you? What, have you? what have you been up to today? Uh, not a lot, I just got back from a walk. Get myself in shape for the interview. <laughs> oh, I like a good walk. A walk clears the mind, doesn't it? Yep. So, we were told that you were happy to do a wee reading for us. Yeah, sure. I always like to kick things off with them. Um, I think it's nice to hear authors read from their books. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. Especially through your own voice. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do a quick reading from a uh, first book of my zombie series. Um, zombie was a 12-book series about a, a zombie apocalypse. And um, the main character is called B. Smith. But um, it's, it's sort of still going to read out. I don't really know too much about what's going on, except B in book one has a recurring nightmare. Um, it's, B has it maybe three, four times a week sometimes. And it's always exactly the same. And it's a nice little standalone scene. So I'm going to read this out for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That night, I had the nightmare again. I've been tormented by it for as long as I can remember. It's always the same and always terrifying. In the dream, I'm on a plane. We haven't taken off yet. I'm by the window, but I don't look out. In the dream, I never look out. There's a woman next to me and a baby in the aisle seat. The baby's sitting alone, strapped in by a normal belt. I know that's not right. They have special straps for babies on planes. But in the dream, it doesn't seem strange. The woman is chatting to her child, making nonsense noises, trying to engage it. But the baby blanks her. It's staring straight ahead. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. It's dressed completely in white. We taxi down the runway. The engine roars, the plane tears free of the ground and whines like a dying dog. I shake in my seat and my stomach clenches. Something bad is coming. I sense it in the air. The roar of a plane engine is always menacing, but this sounds worse. This sounds hungry. The woman next to me starts to cry. She sits there, sobbing, tears streaming down her cheeks. I stare at her, wanting to say something comforting. I'm struck dumb by fear of what's to come. Then, as it always does, the baby speaks. Don't cry, mummy. His voice is tinny, barely a whisper, but still it carries above the roar of the engine. Don't be 
frightened, mummy. We're with you. We'll always be with you. The baby's head turns. But it's not looking at its weeping mother. It's looking at me. It has no pupils, just balls of white for eyes. Your yummy mummy. The baby whispers. And that should be funny. But it isn't, because your unnatural infant has a full set of teeth, all sharpened into fangs. Drops of blood drip from the side of its mouth as it speaks. The baby stands. The woman between us has vanished. The baby looks like a doll, not moving or breathing. White eyes, sharp teeth, blood. Don't be afraid, it says. Except its lips don't move. After a confused moment, I realise the voice came from the seat in front. I look ahead. There's another baby clinging to the top of the seat. I can see its face and its perfect tiny hands. It's the same clothes as the baby next to me, the same white eyes and sharp teeth, but there's no blood on this one's lips. Not yet. The baby in my room is in the seat next to me now. The top of its head doesn't quite reach my chin. It's leaning forwards. I should be able to knock it away with a single swipe of a hand, but I don't move. I can't. You have to die now, the baby says, and the word is echoed and whispered around the cabin. Die, die, die. I half rise and look over the top of the seats. There are babies everywhere, all standing, climbing the seats, looking at me, whispering. I glance back and there are more of the same. Scores of babies clambering over the seats, but calmly, smoothly, faces blank, eyes white, mouths open, teeth flashing. I cringe away from the monstrous babies and press against the window. I think I'm crying, but I can't be sure. The babies crawl over the seats, a tide of them, all looking exactly the same. Only the fingers move, little flickers of tiny flesh and bone. The baby next to me climbs into my lap and stands, feet planted on my thighs, face right in front of mine now. Others crowd around, unnaturally slender fingers fasten on my legs, my ankles, my wrists, my arms. One of the babies grabs my ears and pulls back my head to expose my throat. I spy more babies on the ceiling, hanging from it like little angels or vampires. Join us! The baby directly in front of me says, the blood on its chin has dried and falls off in flaky scabs as it speaks. Die! The others croon. You're one of us. The baby in my lap snarls and suddenly its face changes, its eyes glare red, its lips contort into a sneer, lines of hatred warp its clammy flesh and it shrieks, you're one of us! The baby lunges forwards and latches onto my throat. Those clings to the ceiling drop, the rest pressing around me. All of the mouths are open, rows of tiny, shiny teeth. They all make a sickening moaning sound. Then they bite. And that's the end of the scene. That was brilliant, Darren. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. Oh, thanks. For us to hear um, the author's, like, the effect the author was trying to achieve with, you know, what you were writing. It was really oh, great. Thanks. Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. I mean, you're always a bit of a ham when I can read my books out, but <laughs> I, I, I think it's fun to, to bring a bit of life to the. No, yeah, definitely. 
what made you realize you wanted to be to be an author like specifically for horror was there like a specific book or movie you watched as a child or like growing up that made you think yeah that's what i want to do uh, not really the love of horror was always there i can remember when i was five or six years of age seeing a dracula movie on telly and loving it i loved scary stories i loved catching you know old movies hammer, hammer horror movies for what they tended to be back then um now, there was one movie and book in particular that a little bit further down the line did confirm my love of wanting to be in the world of horror. Uh, that was Salem's Lot. It was one of Stephen King's early books. And it was a TV series made of it, a two-part TV film hit made in the 1970s. And even though it was made for TV, it was absolutely terrifying. And um, I remember I caught the first half, the second half, sorry, of the film one night. Um, this was when I was in about maybe eight, nine, ten years of age. And um, yeah, it was one of the few films that would directly give me a nightmare, and I just loved it. And then a while after that, I spotted the book in a, a bookstore. I'd never heard of Stephen King back then. But um, I just saw it, and it had the picture from the, the TV show, and I asked my, oh, can I buy this, please? Yeah, she was the end of the 90s, actually, it's early 1980s, and back then, parents said, yeah, sure, Stephen King for kids. Yeah, no worries. And um, yeah, I, read, I went and read the same as lots, and yeah, absolutely loved it. And yeah, I think I would have gone into horror anyway, but. That definitely was one of the books and, and films that confirmed this is the right path that I was on. Uh, that's really great that you like found such a passion in horror, um, because I think your books have really like increased accessibility for children to horror. Because I feel like before it was kind of more like you kind of just had to jump straight in the deep end of like kind of like the really scary stuff. Well, exactly. Um, yeah, Salem's Lot is not suitable for a, a nine or a ten year old. You know, I wouldn't let my kids anywhere near it. But um, <laughs> yeah, back back then there was nothing written. Or children who loved horror. This was before uh, even goosebumps or point horror. Um, so you ended up making that leap. If you loved horror as I did, you tended to get some anthology books which would have old, lots of old, out of uh, copyright stories, like the likes of H.P. Lovecraft and Poe, and they were great as well. But there was nothing, no sort of modern, recent books being written, horror books for children or even teenagers. And so what I was trying to do with Cert Freak when I came to wrote it, I was in my mid 20s when I wrote Cert Freak. So I wasn't that far removed from when I was a, a child and a teenager. And I wanted to write something that was as easy and catchy to read as Goosebumps or Point Horror, but which also had all that darkness of Stephen King, because that's what I'd loved as a child. Even though it was written in a way which was inappropriate for 10-year-old me, I wanted something that would would have would have fired me up as much as Stephen's not, but which was also written in an appropriate way. And um, yes, Cert Freak was a result of that tinkering. Yeah, definitely. And I think you really have achieved that in your writing because there are so many children who just, like, and even in our school, like the, the younger kids who just found such a love for horror because of, you know, your books. Ah, but that's music to my ears. <laughs> I mean, you are a sensation. You've sold over 20 million books in 31 different languages. It's a massive achievement. Do you feel the widespread appeal of your work in your daily life through things like letters or people on the street, just generally? Yeah, I don't get um, recognised too much out and about. It's one of the great things of being a writer. Your name can be widely recognised, but your face normally isn't. Some do get, you know, J.K. Rowling, obviously. Most people know what she looks like. But generally speaking, you know, um, even some of my favourite writers, I have no idea what their faces are like. Uh, yeah, I get lots of letters, lots of emails. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter every day. I I've always had a strong interaction with my fans. I did, used to do a lot of touring. I haven't toured the last few years for various reasons. But yeah, I used to spend a lot of time out on the road, all around the world, going to the schools, libraries, bookstores. And um, I've kept that going through Facebook, Twitter. I do a blog post every day. And yeah, it's um, 
yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's great. Uh, great. I say, one of in an author is you can step back from it. It doesn't overpower your life. It's not like an actress or a pop star where you've got paparazzi following you around and it can get to be a bit of a nuisance. You know, I get recognised about, about it. You know, it's a real delight. It's a little treat. It's, you know, if it was happening every five minutes of the day, you know, I couldn't walk down the street, it'd be different. But um, no, I sort of have the best of both worlds. I've had all this you know, incredible success. As you say, the books have sold tens of, minutes, tens of millions of copies. Um, you know, they changed my life, so freak, you know, turned my life completely around. And yeah, that's no, been wonderful. And um, yeah, but none of the aggravations of being properly famous. Yeah, I think that is one of the best things about writing. There is a sense of anonymity to it. There's a sense that you can go out and you can, like, you can go to Morrison's, you can go to the shops, you can <laughs> do your normal things, and also be this sensation where people know your name. It must be like so rewarding to be able to like interact with people who have genuinely gained so much from reading your books. Yeah, it's it's something that always touches me. Um, just before I came on on here, actually, I was reading an email being sent in to me from a, a mum. Her son is in university now, but you know, sort of, he, she brought to me ten years ago. She'd take him out of school and brought me to another another event, and I chatted to him. And I didn't know at the time, but he lost his dad quite recently to that event and stuff. And she said, you know, love of books helped him, you know, deal with that. And yeah, he's going to university now, and every, you know, ten years down the line. Everything's worked out great, but she said, you know, those books played a really big part, big part in that. And um, yeah, sort of, you know, feedback like that is just, it's always just amazing. You know, to, to, I, I grew up being touched by books and get so much from books. And when one of my books does that for another reader, yeah, yeah, it really, really resonates with me. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That really just shows how much, like, you know, your books have just really changed people. Like that, that is that's amazing. That must be so great for you. Yeah. And so, so far, there are no serial killers blaming me for it, so I've got away with that side of it. <laughs> I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop at some point. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which horror character from literature do you see yourself in? Dra- Dracula was the always the, the coolest dude for me. He was, um, you know, in Bram Stoker. Yeah, vampires, vampires existed in literature before Bram Stoker went and wrote Dracula, but they were very, very different sorts of creatures, much more like our modern days zombies in many ways. Um, and he redefined what a vampire was. And yet you know, we've all been riffing off him pretty much ever since, even though if you, do, if you do different things as I've done in my books, it's still drawing heavily on the work of, of Dracula. So yeah, Dracula is the is the main main one for me. I, I, I love vampire books. I always loved horror, but vampires in particular, it was just, I had that special affinity with them. I always wanted to do a vampire book. It took me a long time to get around to it because I didn't want to do a normal sort of vampire book where it's just an evil vampire going around and a group of heroes band together to track it down and kill it. I wanted to do something different and one day I came up with the idea of Sir Freak and a way of telling it from a child's point of view and have the vampires not be evil. But yeah, I think it, I was always destined to to write about vampires at some stage and luckily, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that that's where it, it remains my most popular work because you know, I love vampires more than anything else. So maybe there's more about love in Sir Freak than in, in other books that I've written. Yeah, that that's amazing that you you know you've felt fulfilled that achievement that you've always kind of wanted to uh, do a vampire story. That's that that must be a great feeling for you. And like, do you ever probably like wish you could tell your childhood self that? Uh, no, because I think that would <laughs> that that would have spoiled the surprise. Oh yeah. You know, when, when I wrote Certain Freak, um, it was in 1997, I think I wrote the first draft. I was living with my parents. I was drawing a doll. I was writing on this little old second-hand computer in my bedroom. And, um, yeah, I was, I was hoping they'd make minimum wage. That was my big sort of goal. If I could make minimum wage in Carlton Dole, I, that, that would have been brilliant. Yeah, it was, I never really thought I was going to have this huge success. 
And so when it came, when Cirque Freak started to take off and things began to go mega in, in different countries around the world, it was you know, the surprise of it made it all the, all the more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, so no, I wouldn't. I, yeah, obviously, like it, it's a worrying time in starting as writer because very very few you know very few writers ever make it financially. Mm-hmm. Very, very very few writers can afford to write full time. Even writers get published. If you, if you go into a bookstore now and you look at all the books on the shelves, a large proportion of those writers don't actually write full time. They have other jobs to support themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, to actually end up being one of those for who the dream comes true, it made it all more sweet and not knowing that's the way things were going to pan out. Yeah, you must feel really lucky. Yeah, is there any tips in saying that? Is there any tips you can give to young writers who are aspiring to be just like you with a, a really successful career? Is there any tips you can give them on how to get started? The, the thing I always say is, is, is write for yourself. Write stories you would be interested in reading. Um, and then keep your fingers crossed after that. You can't guarantee the, the financial success. You can't guarantee the big sales, but you'll catch a wave, that your books will sell loads of, of copies. Yeah, some of my favourite authors, they've never sold in huge amounts. Some of my favourite books are, you know, really obscure books that very few people have ever heard of. Your goal has to be to write the best stories you can write. And if you do that, then you will have been successful in your career. The financial side of things, that's something you can't control. When I wrote Certain Freak, no publisher wanted to touch it. My agent said 20 publishers and they all turned it down. It was absolutely worthless as far as the publishing world was concerned. You go forward 10 years and it did manage to sneak through. It became this huge popular word of mouth success and it was worth millions and millions of pounds to the publishing world. Um, so I went from being worthless to being worth millions with exactly the same book. Mm. Uh, it, there's, no, there's no sense to it. The successful stuff doesn't always sell. Sometimes the less successful in terms of quality stuff sells in bucket loads. Um, write stories you want to write, have fun with it, and then keep your fingers crossed that um, the financial success happens. Don't be too disappointed if it doesn't. If you're writing really good books that will connect with readers, you know, ideally to the millions of readers, but if it's with a small number, if, you, if you've got the quality out there, you will find an audience somewhere. Yeah. Now we are lucky enough to also hear a spooky story from one of our S1 pupils, Maya, and this is called No Place to Go Home. The wind is screaming crying, and your only comfort is hiding behind the trees upon you. Sadly, Clara has left you in this horrible scenario, ditching you for her beloved belongings which lay in your shared trailer. Unusual thoughts flash through your bursting mind while repetitively reminding you that seeking help is impossible. A sudden feeling of panic shivers through your fearful body, whilst a forceful wind grabs your back. Immediately, you run toward the trees, heading straight for the trailer. Every step feels life-threatening, as if a heavy boulder is following you from behind. Slamming the door forcefully, you can only hear your terrified breath heavily sighing, pretty loudly. Shaking, you melt into the comfy chair, realising that it's all over. However, where is Clara? Trembling, anxiety grabs you again as you messily search the trailer, Your head begins to throb as bad weather takes over the trailer. Shaking with the wind, you steal a frightfully sharp knife, powerfully squeezing it for support. Grabbing your phone, an alert quickly pops up. Tornado warning! Hesitantly, you close the window, wishing this was only happening in some extremely cursed dream. Everything went black. Snapping back to reality, you slowly begin to realise it was an incredibly cruel dream after all. Surprisingly, you feel safer than ever. 
sinking into the couch and recollecting every little detail to the past events. Almost immediately, you slowly begin to realise that Clara has mysteriously decided to leave you behind. Uncontrollably shaking, you attempt to stay positive. Stealing the keys from Clara's room, you try your best to control your breathing as thoughts scar every part of your brain. Turning slowly, the radio begins to play, drowning out noise coming from the terrors of the wind. We are incredibly saddened to announce the death of Clara MacDonald, a true hero to our country, solving one of the world's cruelest murder cases, her best friends. May she rest in peace. No signal. Freezing with panic, you drift towards the door, clenching the handles with a hope of feeling better and being confronted again. You slam the keys into the handle full force. For the hundredth time, you suddenly begin to feel that crawl of anxiety destroy you once more, banging the door with all your weight that is on you. The door creaks open, revealing an abandoned forest that is lurking in the deep parts of the woods. A flash of hope shines brightly as you realise there stands a young couple becoming interested in the trailer. Hesitantly, you say hello, but become silent again as they drift from your direction. Screaming as loud as sirens, they begin to turn around. Ignorantly, the couple loudly laugh, avoiding your helpless body whilst joking once more. They head back, joking they'd heard a ghost. Slowly, everything comes together. You are not alive. Screaming with fear, you slam the trailer door while clenching the keys. Grabbing your phone, you feel the worry control your body, taking over every thought in your mind. Your trembling hands try to call help, but the signal destroys your anxiety, and you break out as anger grabs you and lurks in your mind. You couldn't be seen, so therefore you are completely irrelevant. Suddenly, blood pulled around you. Once again, your screams were hopeless. It all went black. What do you think you would have done if you weren't a writer? Like, and if you weren't as, you know, fortunate to, you know, be able to you know, make it big and stuff like that? I just started writing. Um, my latest series, Archibald Locks, um, which I just finished, the last book came out uh, this summer, uh, publishers, once again, they decided I was worthless and they didn't want to publish it. So I ended up, I went, I wrote it and I self-published it. I did it through Amazon and other things online. I would have always have been a writer. If I couldn't afford to write full time, I'd have got a job probably in IT or something like that. Mm. I don't think I would have had another career. I wouldn't have become a teacher, for instance, because that demands too much of your time, too much of your thought, too much of your energy. Um, I'd have done some, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five job where I could have clocked off, you know, written in the evenings at nighttime and at the weekends. I, I, I never would have stopped trying. Um, I knew financial success wasn't everything. It's never meant that much to me. It's absolutely lovely that it's happened. Yeah, I've got a nice house, I've got nice stuff. That, that's all great. But it was never what motivated me. It's never what I was chasing. I wanted to write stories that would grab readers and really shake them up. And, yeah, I thought if I could get a few thousand readers, that would be brilliant. Um, I ended up getting millions of readers. Yeah, that's obviously great. But yeah, I, I would always have been writing about what else I'd have done yeah. paid the bills. That's, that's amazing that you had that sort of determination to just keep on going. Determination or madness, depending on how you're going to Yeah, your, your passion really shows through your writing. It's it's incredible. And the fact that you started off in adult fiction with your um, trilogy, The City, and then you moved into young adult fiction um, through Sort of Freak. How did you manage to make that transition? Was it one that you saw coming? Was it like a random encounter where you just thought, this is a niche audience that hasn't been like touched yet? 
No, I wasn't thinking in terms of market or anything. Um, I'd all, I, I assumed two things. One, I, I assumed I would always write for adults and that would be my main sort of career as a writer. But I always enjoyed reading children's books. Uh, when I was at university, I did a year of children's literature, studying children's literature in English for a year. And so I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to try writing for a younger audience. But, you know, I knew very well at the time, which is still holds true now, with you know, very few exceptions, children's books don't make much money. You know, people don't get into writing children's books to, to make cash because, you know, apart from you know, the few big ones, you know, J.K. Rowling, um, Julia Donaldson, you know, so on. Yeah, very, very few children's authors actually make very much. There's very little money in that end of the, of the market. But um, it was something I wanted to do, just as, you know, I thought it was going to be a side project. I wanted to do it for fun. So I'd always had it. I, I was open to the idea of trying it at some point. And then one day I was sitting in a car. Um, I had a couple of, a, a, a young cousin who was asleep in the back seat. I'd forgotten to bring a book. I often babysit, my, when my aunt, she had five kids, and I was the sort of like a big brother to them. And I'd often babysit them, you know, if she'd go out shopping, I'd come along the car and go after them. And yeah, he was sneaking back. I didn't have anything to read because I've got a book. I looked around and I found an old Goosebumps book. And the Goosebumps wasn't there when I was a child. I was aware of it because they'd been very successful, but I'd never actually read them. And so I flicked through this book and I read a few chapters and I quite enjoyed it, but I don't, you know, I noticed two things. One, I would have loved Goosebumps as an eight, nine, 10 year old. But two, it was very, very formulaic and very, very safe. And I thought what I would have loved even more was something as catchy as Goosebumps, but much, much darker. And then I had this idea of a boy meets a vampire at a circus and ends up reluctantly becoming his assistant and um, a few days later I started writing it and I did it for fun and uh, yeah it, I, it, I didn't see it as a career change it ended up being a career change but it wasn't something I planned it just sort of it, I turned out to be quite good at it even though publishers didn't believe that at first and um, the demand was there I really enjoyed doing it I had more ideas for children's books and yeah I've, um, 20, 25 years later I'm still chipping away that's amazing that you took that leap into children's writing like that. Thanks. For now, we're going to welcome in some of our younger super fans who um, are are in total awe of your books, um, and they'd like to come in and ask you a couple of questions, if, if that's okay. Brilliant. That sounds fun. Yeah. Great. Um, so up first, we have Sam and Logan. Great stuff. Hi. I've got a question. How do you select the names of your characters? They come from different places. Um, Sometimes, actually quite a lot of the time, I'll use real names of people that I know. Lots of the characters in my books are named after friends and family members. Uh, often they're the villains. Sometimes my most vicious, horrible villains are named after cute little cousins of, of mine. Um, I never saw, I never base the characters on real people. I just use the names of real people. And what I found is people quite like it if the villains are named after them. So quite a few names will be named after real people. Other times, I'll, um, I love movies and love watching lots of different types of movies. And I've always got a few movie guidebooks around the place. So sometimes I would flick through one of those guidebooks and I'd find some sort of name that I wasn't familiar with and I'd maybe use that. And then other times I'll take a word or a name and I'll play around with it. So for instance, Mr. Krepsley in my Search Freak books. Originally when I was writing the first draft, his stage name was going to be Mr. Creepy. And then I thought, no, no, that's too childish. That sounds silly. But I like the sound of creepy. So I played around with the word, put a few more letters in, and that's where Krepsley came from. So yeah, it's a real mix. I never know what the name's going to be when I sit down to write, and I just I sort of jot things down, and I sort of they, they just they tend to come together. I'm never quite sure how. I just always know when the name feels right for a character. I, I'll go with it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like when you just when you know, you know. How long does it take you to write a book? It's a, a long process for me. I write very quickly. 
I'll do a first draft. Let's say it depends on how long the book is. Let's say a book is about 200, 250 pages. I'd normally do a first draft of that in maybe a month to six weeks. But I will go through a book at least seven or eight times before I'm happy with it and it's ready to be published. And what I like to do is leave a gap in between each draft. So when I finish the first draft of the book, I set it aside. Sometimes it might be for six months, nine months, a year, and I'll go and work on other things. Then I'll come back to it and I'll do a rewrite. Then I leave it again, I go and work on other stuff, I come back to it, do another edit, and so on. I find those gaps, it helps me be, it helps me be more subjective. When I'm doing the first draft, I'm caught up in the, in the drama of it all. I think everything's working perfectly. I think it's all good, it's all fine. And when I leave it for a while, I come back and I'm more clinical. I can see, okay, this needs to be changed. That character's not working. That line needs to go. I need to write a few extra chapters here or there. And so um, with the gaps, it's on average between two and three years for any book that I publish. Sometimes it can be even longer. Sometimes um, you know, I can spread it out even longer than that. But because of the way I juggle books around, that's how I can release them so quickly. You know, over the last 22 years, 23 years, I've released nearly 60 books. Um, I, obviously, I spent two or three years working just a book at a time. That would have taken me 120 years <laughs> to do. But um, yeah, because I juggle the books, that's how I bring them out quickly. But yeah, each book that I, I print has had at least two or three years of work put into it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thanks pleasure. a lot, guys. Next, we're going to welcome in Sebi and Sean, who are going to ask you a couple of questions as well. Thank you so much, guys. Stuff. See you guys. Okay. I'll go first. Um, what does your family think about your writing? Great question. Oh, yeah, yeah, they love it. I mean, it's, it's hard when you're starting out because people who know you find it hard to imagine you as an author. They just think you're, you're pretending. You're sitting in your room, you're not really doing anything. I, I never really showed my work to my family. I never liked the feedback of people that I knew because I just didn't think they could be really objective. I just preferred to take it to publishers and agents and editors. So I just think you get a more, um, more more of a view that a reader will have. As you know, somebody knows you. My mum loves every book I've ever written, but I'm not, I'm not going to rely on her to give a, an objective opinion. <laughs> you know, if she said a book was bad, I'd be, I'd be concerned. So, um, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, yeah, a lot of my family thought, you know, they couldn't really believe I was going to make it. They, you know, it's what Darren, he's just, yeah, he'll stop pretending now and he'll go and get a proper job or something. But no, no, my mum and dad were always very, very supportive. You know, they let me live with them when I wasn't making any money. Uh, you know, we didn't ask for a load of rent or paying a lot for the bills and food and stuff. Uh, yeah, so they, they were very, very good to me. Yeah. I, I was very, very fortunate to have that support. That's great. You had such a good support system. and It, it, it was lucky. I mean, it, it, it made it a bit easier. You know, I didn't have to go out yeah. then. And I, I was able to sort of, you know, not work for a few years while I was getting going and you know, I was drawing the doll, but they helped support me. So I had a nice place to live rather than some rat-infested flat in the, in the middle of Lyric. Yeah. Well, uh, my question is, what was your favourite childhood book? Well, it, it was sad a bit odd. A lot of people, because I'm like, I'm so famous for my horror work, even though I've written different types of books, you know, horror is what I'm best known for. Uh, there is this sort of assumption, I think, among a lot of people, among a lot of people, that all I ever read was horror. And that's not actually the case. I, I think it's good to read, no matter what your favourite genre is, to read a wide variety of books if you want to be a writer. And I've always liked different types of books. And my favourite book when I was growing up, and it's still one of my favourite children's books, was The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett, just written, I think, about 100 years ago now, maybe a bit more. Um, and it's actually had a big impact on me. Uh, it's a lovely, sweet book. And sometimes when I mention it, you know, people go, the author of Lord Lost loved Secret Garden. 
And if you read Lord Loss, it starts with a young boy whose family are wiped out and he's sent to live with this mysterious uncle who lives in a big spooky house in the middle of nowhere. And that's the beginning of the Secret Garden. And the after in, in Secret Garden, it was the plague that wiped out the, the main character's family. Whereas in my books, it was demons. But the structure was borrowed very strongly from the Secret Garden. It's great finding such a passion in books when you were younger that kind of developed you going on to write. I always loved reading. Most writers, not every writer, but the vast, vast majority of writers do love reading. You know, if you hate reading, you've got no, you know, you're really going to hate writing. You, know, no, you, know, you, you can spend, you know, you'll read a book maybe in a week, you'll spend months and years if you're writing a book. So you've really got to be invested in it, I think. And so there are very few writers I've met who didn't enjoy reading. Some came to it later. Some, they might not have read as children and they discovered a love of writing later on in life. But I think if you don't have that love of writing, you're, you're in the wrong job if you want to be a writer. No, definitely. I think it takes a lot of commitment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, guys, for thank your you. questions. See ya. Next, we have Abby and Imogen, who are going to come in and ask you a couple of questions as well. Hello. You just go ahead and ask Darren his question whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, do you hear from your readers much and what kind of things did they say? I do. I'm very um, active on social media. I, have, I, I did my own website years ago, over 20 years ago, and I still get some emails through about that, but most of these days it's on Facebook and Twitter. I'd, I'd connect with people. I still get the occasional letter, but that has dropped quite a lot as social media has come to the fore over the last 10, 10 years in particular, I think. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. Um, usually it's positive feedback. I, I'm very lucky, actually. I get very, very few emails from people or letters from people who you know, complain about my work. Pretty much everyone say, oh, they really like it and they really enjoyed it and it had a big, a big impact on them. Uh, it, it's nice now, um, when I first started going out, it was mostly children that I'd hear from. You know, children write me letters or, you know, educational email from kids. You know, these days, it's a lot of older readers, people who read my books, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe your sort of age, and now they've got their own kids and they're reading the book with the kids or they're reading the books as adults. And yeah, so they're writing to me and talking about, you know, how the books have impacted their lives and how they impacted on their kids' lives and stuff. So yeah, the, the nature of the questions has changed somewhat over the last decade or so, but they're all still mostly positive. I love that, that interaction with the fans. Mm -hmm. that, that is great that you've sort of like provoked a passion for reading in people and then they're going to pass it on to, you know, further generations. That Like that's just, that must be such a great feeling for you. It is, but it, it it does also make me feel old when I get people say, oh, I read your books when I was 10 years old, and now my kid is reading them too. I go, oh no, time has gone so fast. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's the sort of negative side to it then. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to go ahead and ask? Would you like your books to turn into a television series? I would. Um, I'm always open to the idea of my works being adapted. You know, I love reading, but I also love movies, I love TV shows, and yeah, they can reach a, a much wider audience. So yeah, it's always a great, it's always a good thing, even when they change, make changes and it doesn't look out so well, it still helps you find new readers. There was a film of Certain Freak uh, about 12, 13 years ago, um, and that was a very unfaithful adaptation. We're working on, there's a team in the States at the moment who are working on trying to reboot it, most probably for TV, if, if it happens. Um, but it's still in the very early stages, you know, that might happen, it might not happen. We've been working on it for quite a, quite a while over the years. But um, yeah, fingers crossed, We'll see a reboot of Certain Freak at some point in the future. Zombie was option for a while. Um, that didn't come to anything, so those rights are back with me at the moment. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a strange old world, the movie and TV world. Uh, you, you can see things like Sandman is, is a big hit show at the moment. You know, I read the Sandman comics when they first came out 30 years ago. And you know, it took that long 
for them to you know, to be adapted. And it's very often the way Lord of the Rings. It took a long, long time before that ended up being properly done justice. So I do hope there will be more adaptations going forwards. But I always say to my readers, don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it would be such a privilege to like have you know someone want to adapt your um, book into a TV series and you know kind of enhance its success like that. It is. If it works well, you, you, the thing is, you can't control it as an author. That's the only thing. You know, sometimes they adapt it as they did with Cert Freak and they turn it into a completely different type of story. And yeah, that's, I know it's disappointing for the readers because they want to see their story brought to life. But um, yeah, no, it, it's lovely when there's interest there. And you know, always, I always keep my fingers crossed if things start to move forwards because you know, it is in the lap of the gods once they take it on. And, Every, you know, every studio will tell you, oh, yes, they love the work, they're going to bring it to life exactly as you thought it was going to be. You know, very few series do actually get done proper justice when they get that. But hopefully my books will be one of the rare exceptions if and yeah. when and if it happens. Yeah, I think it would really like make it a bigger audience as well. Like if, you know, it was made into a TV series, it would make, maybe make people want to read the books more as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's... Um, yeah, certain freak movie didn't do very well at the box office, but it still brought loads and loads of new readers to my world. You know, movies yeah. that don't do very yeah. well, they can still find a, a big, big audience, especially with streaming these days. Uh-huh. So yeah, no, it's always, it's always it's, you know, from a purely financial point of view, it, it always makes sense for it to be done. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for your questions. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Now we have another S1 story, this time from Caitlin, called Lockdown. It was the first day back at school and Danny was dreading it. He tucked a few short strands of dark brown hair back into his grey beanie, but they sprang out again within seconds. When he opened the door to the school, a roar of noise from the busy hallway disrupted the silent street. He squeezed through the crowds of people and made his way to his locker. Over the roaring noise of the students, Danny could make out a voice that caused a wave of dread to wash over him. It was none other than Cassandra, the biggest brat you'll ever meet, and her friends. Would you look at that? He came back for another year of hell. She let out a snicker and grabbed the hat off Danny's head before shoving him into his own open locker. She slammed the locker door shut and stormed off. Danny rattled the locker door until it sprung open. He clambered out and steadied himself. There was an eerie silence followed by a loud screech. This was not the bustling hallway Danny had left. He didn't know where he was, but all he knew was that this wasn't his school. He looked around, the lights were flickering as they hung from the roof. There were cracks with moulds growing out of them along with most of the walls. It seemed so similar to the school but yet so different. As he stood and took in the atmosphere, it hit him. How was he going to get out of here? Did he really want to leave? He thought of everything he could escape by staying here but what about his mother? He thought of how worried she would be when he didn't return home that evening. His train of thought was interrupted by a shuffling from the neighbouring hallway. Danny creeped round the corner to see where the noise came from. He froze in his tracks. There was something in that hallway. Something inhumane. Danny took a step backwards. The ground beneath him let out a crunch. A crunch that in the bustling hallway would have gone unheard. But in this deserted hallway it was unpleasantly loud. With a crack of its neck, the creature looked Danny dead in the eye before it scurried off through a nearby open door. Without hesitation, he hurriedly followed it through the doorway into what almost seemed like his classroom. He was so taken aback by how unnerving the whole scene was that he didn't notice the creature scurrying back out into the hallway. 
Where his desk used to be was a pile of rubble. Every other desk was perfectly intact. Surely it was just a coincidence, right? Seeing this just fueled his need to get out of here. A feeling of unease settled in his bones as he looked at what used to be his desk. It was just now that he realised he was standing alone in the classroom. The creature had left. He decided to look for the creature in an attempt to figure out how to get home. As he walked into the hallway, he was met by a teary-eyed girl. His natural instinct would be to ask her what was wrong, but something inside him told him just to walk away. As he turned away, the sound of her crying began to get louder and louder. His walking progressed into a run and a desperate attempt to escape the sound of her tears. Suddenly, he stopped. In front of him was a mirror, but instead of his reflection, he stared it onto the real world. It was his life. He saw himself, but if he was here, then who was that? He stretched his arm out only to be met by glass. He was trapped. It was like he was locked out of his own life, like he was watching through a window that no matter how hard he tried, he would never open. Something behind him let out a creak. He froze. He was no longer alone. Something or someone was there with him and they were getting closer until they stopped. Without thinking, Danny turned around to be met only with darkness. When he opened his eyes, they were met with a sight that caused confusion. Once again, he looked out on his very own life that someone else was living. This time it wasn't just a normal day he was missing out on, it was his birthday and he was missing it. He watched as his family handled this other version of him, all the gifts that he had wanted. As he looked down at what he was missing out on, the new him looked up at him with a sinister smile. He had been replaced and he couldn't do anything about it. And finally, we're going to have Rachel and we have Ailey here as well, who is going to ask you a question. Hi. So, um, do you have a favourite character and like, why do you favourite that character? Well, I mean, obviously there's Baron Shan, who has a, <laughs> a character. No, um, no, but my, my favourite character is Mr. Prepsley from Surfer Freak. Uh, and he's, he's the fan favourite as well. He's the, he's the one who I get the most uh, letters about or you know, emails about, the one who gets drawn by artistic fans the most. Uh, yeah, Mr. Prepsley, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to, to say exactly why he moved me so much and moves readers so much. There was just something special about his relationship with Darren. And uh, I never knew much about him when I wrote Surfer Freak. It, even it, it took until book three for me to figure out if he was going to be a hero or a villain. In the first couple of books, he could have gone either way. I wasn't sure, was he going to be a positive force in Darren's life or was he going to be a very, very negative force? And um, yeah, it wasn't really until after I finished the saga of Darren Shan, I went back some years later and wrote a four book series called The Saga of Martin Krebsley, which explores his life from when he was a child 200 years ago to the point where he met Darren. And it was only when I wrote those books that I finally got a real hand on him and understood him properly. Until then, he was always a sort of mystery to me. And um, yeah, Mr. Krepsley is definitely my favourite character. Do you have a favourite book that you've written? I do. For years, I didn't. And when I used to do events and I'd get asked that question, I'd always say, my books are like children to me and a good parent never has a favourite child. But I think we all know that parents really do have favourites in those cases. <laughs> and uh, I did write a book which does mean more to me than the others. Um, it's actually a one-off book I released it's quite a long time now, over 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, uh, called The Finn Executioner. It's a standalone fantasy book. It's quite different to my other books. It's set in this fant fantasy world that I created just for the story. 
And then, yeah, if there was, a, if, there, if my house was burning down and I could only grab one book of mine to take with me out for the flames, I'd grab the Executioner. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, thank you so much for that, guys. They were great questions. Thanks a lot. I'm going to move over so I can let Daniel back in. Okay. Welcome back, Daniel. Thank you. I'm back from the left-hand <laughs> side of this table. <laughs> Honestly, Darren, that has just been amazing. I'm so glad we had this opportunity to get to talk to you. It has been, it has been so great. And I'm sure... Oh, thank you so much. Oh, they were excellent questions. They were really good. Made it fun for me as well. The younger students have really enjoyed it as well. So thank you so, so much for giving up your time. And as well, look, this much must be such a busy time for you, especially when your books are so horror based. It's like ha- Halloween. I know, Halloween, Halloween's always a busy time. <laughs> Everyone yeah. wants to speak to you. <laughs> so, yeah, honestly, it really means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Honestly, I think that for the two of us and also for the younger school, this has just been a great experience and it's been great to talk to you. Um, and oh, it's especially the start of spooky season. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for going through. I'm going through technology your work, so I'm always worried about that. Uh, <laughs> I hope you all have a great Halloween. I look forward to oh, seeing this week's Halloween. online and I'll, I'll spread it around to my followers as best I can. Thank you thank so you. much. Enjoy the rest of your day, Darren. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. That was an incredible interview. I'm so happy that we got this experience. I mean, I think both of us have just enjoyed this so much and all of the questions from our super fans were absolutely brilliant. I think they've talked about what was in everyone's mind and obviously it's incredible that Darren took some time out of his day to come and talk with us. I completely agree with Daniel. It's been such a great experience doing this for the first time and I'm really looking forward to future interviews with other authors that you can also look forward to. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love if you could spread the words about our podcast and left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and keep Keep reading! reading. (laughs)